0: Hey everyone, this is Brian from the Tennis IQ Podcast. Josh and I hope that you are enjoying the content and discussions that we put out week after week. If you'd like to support the podcast and help us to continue to produce quality episodes, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash Podcast slash membership. Currently, we have three tiers of support. The fan level at $3 per month, the supporter level at $7 per month, and the champion level at $20 per month. Benefits of joining the Tennis IQ podcast community include episode transcripts, participation in book club discussions, and access to monthly master classes with me and Josh. For more on these benefits of support, head on over to our Patreon page at patreon.com/slash tennis IQ slash membership. Thank you so much. And now, on to the show. <laughs> Welcome to the Tennis IQ podcast. I'm Brian Lomax,
1: and I'm Josh Berger. And in today's episode, we are going to be discussing the 2023 French Open, uh, Roland Garros, as it's as it's called, um, which just wrapped up. And I had the the great fortune um, to to be there to be there live um, in in the second week, which was which was really a pleasure. Um, saw a couple of uh, people that I work with there. Um, and uh, really enjoyed a lot of the matches, some of the, some of which we will talk about today. Um, and on the women's side, um, Iga Sviantek won the title, and on the men's side, Novak Djokovic won the title. Um, I think a lot of a lot of history, um, certainly on the men's side, but also on the women's side, um, and, and certainly a lot of mental themes that we will discuss today. Um, as as we talk about both of them, and I think certain qualities that have that, that that led to them, you know, winning the championship, but have also led to each of them becoming the players that they are um, with each of them. You know, uh, Ego was number one going into the tournament, stays number one. Novak is now number one after the tournament. Um, and I think there's a lot there with with each of them. And, you know, their I think their mental qualities have really allowed them to. You know have have been one of the main factors that have allowed them to have the the type of success that they've had in their careers, and have you know has has certainly helped helped them win uh, multiple multiple Grand Slams. Um, so Brian, as you start to think about um, the matches, I think I think maybe we could start to to start with Djokovic, and uh, you know his you know he's certainly um, made history. Um, we were on the men's side breaking the doll's record of twenty-two and now having twenty-three uh, Grand Slam titles, tying Serena Williams. Um, and what were some of the, some of your takeaways about about Novak Djokovic from from either the final or just from his performance during the tournament?
0: I think actually there are a couple of parallels, Josh, between Djokovic and Sfiantec that we could cover here, but we can start with with Djokovic. Um both of them didn't have the ne- necessarily the best clay court season coming in to Paris, so um, they had that piece going on. But I think you know these are the type of players who are looking to really prioritize and peak at Grand Slams, and that's certainly something that Djokovic, at his age and at his stage of the of his careers, has prioritized now is the these major events. I think. Uh, so that was in common. I think uh, both of them had a, a lot of locker room power throughout the tournament. And we'll, we'll talk about examples of that. And that's a concept that we discussed with David Samuel some time ago about this aura that these, these best players have. And I think they also were both um, very good under pressure, very if we were to call them clutch performances, they they, they had clutch performances um, throughout the tournament. And uh, and we can talk about some of those. But one of the most impactful things, I think, from Djokovic, Josh, was, was something that he said in the post-match speech on court where he uh, specifically addressed the young people of the world. And I, I'm just going to paraphrase, but you know he 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 was really referring to his own journey and how he had gotten to this point in his life and 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 the message was to to create your own des- destiny you know have the courage to do that visualize it feel it with every cell in your body be in the present moment and that these were some of the ingredients that allowed him to come from you know a war-torn country in the 90s serbia and and climb all the way to where he is now with 23 major titles and now with the most and and still able to play and very probably the favorite for both uh Wimbledon and and the US Open. And so the reason I wanted to bring this up is that the next day I was working with a a young player uh who's in high school and she asked me if I had heard Djokovic's speech and and she told me um, when she listened to it, it prompted a memory for her that she used to do that kind of thing. She used to visualize things and believe that certain things would happen with every cell, every fiber of her being, and they would happen to her. But somewhere along the way, uh, she stopped for whatever reason, and she couldn't even really remember why. And so she said, I think I'd like to start doing that again and we had a really nice conversation and session after that talking about some of the things that she'd like to achieve and how she would like to be and what are the things that she's willing to do in order to to achieve these things and um that was just one example of someone halfway across the world who was touched by something that Novak said at, uh you know in in his speech so i thought that was really cool and he's talked about that before josh this idea of visualizing it feeling it with every cell in his body um he had a great answer in his press conference about growing up in serbia in the 90s and um you know who his mentors were and how they really shaped him even as a young person you know so he talked about uh Yelena Gencich and how she would speak to him in a very mature way. Even when he was seven, eight years old, they would watch matches and she would treat him like an equal. She taught him how to be relaxed, um, how to you know, even listen to classical music for, from a relaxation standpoint. Um, and really began to feed his mind and, and, and truly mentor him. And he also mentioned uh, Nikki Pillich, who's still alive. And, um, and, and still training in his 80s. Um, so he, was, he also recognizes that he was fortunate enough that there were these people in his life who really believed in him, took him, you know, took him under their wing and you know, passed on a lot of wisdom, as well as his parents who, uh, he noted, they put everything into, into his career, even to the point of being ridiculed by other people in the tennis community. Um, these are the things that happen as, as human beings, right? But, um, if you can make full commitments to your objectives, who knows what can happen? And, and Novak is, is a great example of that. Um, and I think part of the message that I delivered to my student was, you know, you may not be the number one player in the world, but by adopting this attitude, you will certainly go further than you would have ever gone without this attitude. And it will be very gratifying to you at a certain point in your life when then you'll be able to look back and say, yes, I did it. I did everything I could based on what I knew in the moment. So I guess that was one thing. It had nothing to do with the tennis, Josh, other than you know it's a lot of self-belief piece, which, which Novak has, but I also thought it was really special the way he shared that.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, there's a book, some some people in our audience might be familiar with it, or maybe have read it or or not. Um, but Djokovic has a book that, that he wrote. Uh, let me actually pull up what year his book.
0: Yeah, because I know you in. read that some time ago. I,
1: I have read it. it. It was actually from 2013. So 10 years ago. Um, and a lot of the book is about his diet and some of the changes that he made to his diet. And I know neither of us are, you know, that th- that's not our, our lane and that's, you know, not our expertise. So, um, you know, he, he talks about going gluten-free and having a, a gluten intolerance. I think a lactose intolerance as well um, is actually funny because I think his, his parents or his dad had a, a pizza place growing up. And then at a certain point he realized that he had both a gluten intolerance A dairy intolerance, and I think a a mild intolerance to tomatoes. So it was like all the three uh, main ingredients. But um, but anyways, uh, so so elements of the book talk about you know a lot of it is about the diet. They also talk about you know some physical things like stretches and yoga that he does. But but he also talks about the the mental piece, and I know he talks about um, certain mental tools that he uses. And he, he they talk a lot about visualization, and I know that's a tool that he has spoken openly about using. And I think at one point when he was playing Federer in the Wimbledon finals and the crowd was overwhelmingly in Federer's favor, he was talking about how he sort of visualized himself in that moment and, you know, thought, visualized the crowd more chanting for him than for Federer and sort of tried to use that to his advantage. Um, So visualization was a tool that he talked about In that book. And he also talked about meditation Um, and he talks about meditation, having a way to calm the mind, having a way to spend more time in the present moment and and be aware of where your attention is moment by moment. If your attention is in the present, if it's not. And I think it's it's very easy in certainly in big moments um, for your attention to drift. And you're trying to stay present. You're trying to focus on the next point. But instead, it's easy for you to focus on something that's already happened and focus on the past, or easy for you to focus on the future and what could happen. And, you know, especially like a great something like a Grand Slam when you're playing in the later rounds and you're playing in the finals and you're a set away from history and from winning the most Grand Slams from any male player. Very easy to start thinking about the future start thinking about winning the match. And as we've talked about, and you know, for for most people, for you know, for everybody besides the top players in the world, the stakes are a lot lower. You know, if you're playing in a USTA tournament, um, the stakes aren't quite the same as the French Open Finals. But almost everybody is gonna feel it in that moment. You're gonna feel the pressure. You're gonna start thinking about what could happen, start thinking about the results, start start thinking about the future. So I, I think it his ability to perform really show, you know, I I think it, it shows how he has dedicated himself to some of these, you know, both on the physical side, certainly, but also on the mental side, using skills like, you know, tools like visualization and meditation, I think um, has, has really seemed to to do him a world of good. Um, And he's, he's talked about them as well. So I I think um, that was one of the big things that I noticed, but also just, his ability to really lock in, and I, I saw this firsthand in, in the two matches that I was at of his. I was at his quarterfinal match and his finals match. Um, in his in his quarterfinal match against Kachanov, Karen Kachanov from Russia, um, he lost the first set. He lost the first set, and in the second set, they were in a tiebreaker, and Djokovic just completely locked it down. I think it was seven zero. I think it was seven zero. Like somebody could fact check me on that. Mm-hmm. But um and so then it was one set piece, and then he really got into this mode in that third set and much of the fourth set where he just didn't miss. He got he he got into this mode where he was just able to yep, it was it was seven zero where he was able just to, to just stop missing and just able to just really lock it down and play in a way where you know not. He wasn't pushing, certainly. He was very much going for his shots, hitting winners, but not missing. So he had this second set tiebreaker without any unforced errors, without even losing a point. And then in the finals, it was a similar story in a certain way, where Kasper Rude got off to this very fast start, was up 4-1, uh, looked great, was playing great. Djokovic looked tense, um, but got it to a first set tiebreaker, but an amazing first set tiebreaker, it was seven one, again no unforced errors, which was I, th- I think throughout the tournament he had a number of tiebreakers, um, and didn't have any unforced errors in any of those tiebreakers. I think there was I think there were six of them, um, and did not have a single unforced error in any of those tiebreakers throughout the tournament, which is which is really quite impressive. Um, And I think for me, when I think about him, it it really is his ability to just get into this mode where he is just completely locked in. And we can speculate that that could be based on using some of the, the, the tools that we talked about, but I think it's, it's just really incredible to watch a player who's able to just be so present, be so locked in, be in that flow state that, that we, you know, that's often referred to. And get into this mode of just not missing and just playing with precision. And, you know, I think emotionally being calmer in those moments as well. And, yeah, I think, you know, for 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 people that are listening, I think people can think about how can they maybe get a piece of that in their own games. Again, it's going to look a lot different from what Djokovic is able to produce. But can you think back to a moment where you've been in that peak performance state? And what were some of the elements that you that, that you felt in that state? Did you feel relaxed? Did you feel focused? Were you thinking about the score or were you not? Were you watching the ball? What were you focused on? So can you try to think about moments where you felt as close to that as possible? And then maybe there's ways to to replicate that. But yeah, I think with Djokovic, that ability that he has to just fully lock in is unique to him. and And I think
0: will be part of his, his legacy. It, the reason I use the word clutch is because it made me think about um, an article or some research that's been done about the connection between clutch states and flow states and, and how athletes, the top athletes can, can do that. Well, I guess when I say the top athletes, really the ones who, who compete and are, are highly successful in those moments. You know, a clutch moment is... When some outcome is on the line, like a set, and you're in contention, obviously, if you're in a tiebreaker, you're in contention. And the characterization of a clutch performance is, you know, so there's this is paper from 2017 about this: uh, complete and deliberate focus, give a heightened awareness, intense effort, absence of negative thoughts, heightened intensity, and your skills are just automatic, right? The flow piece. And that's, if you think back, that's what we saw from Djokovic, in, in, especially in those tiebreakers. Um, and so, you know, how do you do that? Um, you know, one is to recognize the moment. You know, for some people that that works. I, you know, I want to talk about how Fiontek handled hers. It was a little bit different than that. Um, you know, know what the situation is, accept that challenge, um, set your goals, what you want to do there, and then make a conscious decision to increase your effort and intensity. And I think that's, you know, if we look at what Djokovic did, a lot of that has ha- happened. He knows what the score is. And even that first point in the tiebreaker against Rude, right? I think he, he moved to his right and he hit a ball. It was, you know, it was down the line. It was on a little bit of an angle, uh, but it hit off the baseline. You know, it was like a great way. And he had missed that shot earlier in the set, at least once or twice. And now... Now that it was uh, the moment it really mattered, he makes it, right? Um, so I think, and I think we did an episode, Josh, on clutch performances, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. could even go back to, to that one. But Svantec was, she handled it slightly differently. Um, you know, when she was down in the third, she mentioned that she stopped thinking about the score, which is interesting, right? So she's losing and maybe that's why because the score is a huge distraction for many players. I got an email from a player with her summary of the weekend. She played up great beginning of all these sets until a certain point and then everything kind of went off the rails. And I was like, "Oh, seems like the score is kind of an, kind of a factor yeah. <laughs> in how you play." So here was a, a good decision I think for Shiontek. So she's decided her words, I wanted to use my intuition more because I knew that I can play a little bit better if I'm going to get a little bit more loosened up. Makes sense. And to me, with intuition more, Josh, I think that means with more trust, trusting your game more. And then it delivered for her. And so that was her response to perhaps a clutch moment The match was, and maybe this is what is similar between the two. They did it perhaps different ways, but they both came into the present moment. They both began to focus on what the things that they are fully in control of, and um, and then obviously both of them came through and and won their respective titles. So, um, that's why I referred to Clutch, and that's why I thought that both of these players really exhibited that
1: definitely. Definitely. And and I think with, with Sviantec, yeah, you know, I I think this was unique from some of her other finals where she really had to battle in this one. I think in, you know, her, in her other finals, she has um, been a lot more dominant, has just been the stronger player on on the court. And I think this, you know, in this one, there was a lot more ups and downs in that match. She was up, I believe it was six, two, three, Oh, against Mukova. Looked like it was going to be smooth sailing. And Mukova came back. And, you know, credit to her. She came back against Sabalenka in the semifinals. Had come back in, in other matches as well. Um, has had a lot of, you know, really big wins over the years, um, including some top three wins. You know, has had a lot of injuries. But, yes, Fiontech really had to battle. and And she managed to. She managed to battle. She managed to come back. And I think she, you know, she really looked like she was trusting her game trusting her shots, especially in that, you know, second half of that third set, she was able to lock in. And, you know, she's also a great player, a, a player that is a great Testament to uh, her commitment to the mental game. And we've talked about this a lot in past episodes. And I think we've done some other um, grand slam recaps where she has won. If if people want to go back and listen, um, but you know, her work with, Daria Abram Abramovitz um, and the their work on on the mental game, um, and just her dedication to it. How you know Daria works with her full time, and they're she's you know they, I, I know they've done a lot of lot of work in, in this area. Um, has has really she seemed to show, and uh, you know credit to Iga. It's amazing how much she has done in her young career, and, and she also just seems seems poised to be able to, you know, keep it going. And we'll see what that looks like exactly in terms of results. But, you know, she seems to have perspective. Um, you know, when she is in a press conference, she's always very thoughtful, gives very, just just very thoughtful answers. I mean, I remember one of her press conferences earlier in the tournament, she won a match 6-love, six 6-love, six which is not very common in, in professional tennis uh, much more common in at the you know junior level rec- and uh, you know a, adult non-professional level um, but she want to match six love six love and they were asking her about it because on social media people were talking about um, you know i think they referred to it as the bagel factory because she had been you know winning different sets six love and you know it's referred to as a bagel um, six, one being a breadstick. And they were asking her about that. And I think she, she sort of, um, hit back in a certain way and was saying, you know, I I understand that all the players are working really hard out there and that's not necessarily respectful. If people want to talk on social media, they can, but I'm not going to be, you know, engaging in that way. So I think, you know, she's the type of player that it seems like she can keep her success going because of, I think, largely due to the fact of, you know, the, the perspective that she has about herself, about the game. Um, and, and it's incredible for someone, I, I believe she's only 22, um, and she's been around for this past few years, you know, having a lot of success. Um, but I think, you know, her perspective is really impressive.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of humility there. And uh, she was also asked about, are we in an era of a, of a big three in women's tennis with, Elena Rybakina and uh, Arena Zabalenka. And uh, so her answer to that was, I'm just really focused on me. I'm not worried about the other two, um, but I think that would be, it'd be very interesting if we were to have uh, a big three in women's tennis over a sustained period of time. We've, we've certainly had our, our uh, individual rivalries in women's tennis, uh, but it would be really cool if we had three people in the mix and maybe more and because i think the depth in women's tennis is as good as it's ever been the the athleticism that we're seeing is is, it's next level as is you know i think on the men's side even even carlos alcaraz is, is upping the ante on physicality there and so it's nice to see this this group this next group of players taking it One step beyond sort of, you know, Martina Navratilova did that for women's tennis in the in the 70s and late 70s, early 80s. Other players have done it. Uh, I remember Tiger Woods did that in golf. He took the physicality of that sport to a whole nother level to the point where all the golfers now are are doing strength and conditioning training where that wasn't necessarily the case prior. Um, So it's it's great to see that kind of thing. And um, I hope I hope that. Ribikina, Sabalenka, and Sviantek can create this great rivalry between the the three of them because it seems that Ribikina and Sabalenka are the only ones that Sviantek hasn't completely mastered yet. If anything, they've been able to push her around. So um, I think the last two majors of the year could be very, very interesting, Um, especially since, uh, you know, the Belarusian and Russian players can play Wimbledon this year. And and certainly everybody can be at the US Open regardless of vaccination status this year.
1: It'll definitely be interesting. I think yeah, the the next the next few months will will definitely be interesting in terms of those those final two Grand Slams. I mean, I think going into Wimbledon, um Djokovic has been dominant in recent years. Um so I think it's it's his tournament to lose, um. In many ways, but but we'll see. I mean, I think it'll you know, Alcaraz is now going into this tournament. I think in a very in a very different position than he's been in in past years, uh, or, you know, or compared to last year really, where you know he was still sort of the new kid on the block last year at Wimbledon, hadn't really played many grass court matches at all, and is still an, inexperienced in that way but now has been number 1 has won a grand slam um, so i think he's coming in in a different position as well and and we'll see with some of the other top players i mean i don't think most people would have predicted that Kyrios would have been in a final in, in the wimbledon final last year so you know I, I think there's there's a lot of people that that could contend and yeah on the women's side i think those those three yeah are, are all the type of people that that really could win it i mean the um it it was it was a shame with Cassaquina having to to pull out um, you know, b- before her match in at uh, the French Open. And um, you know, Sabalenka was a point away from making it to the finals. So I think all three of them are really at the top of their game. And it'll be interesting to see if some of the Americans um on the women, I think both on the on the men's and women's side, um can have some success there. I mean, uh, Coco Goff and, and, uh, Jessica Pagula, I think are, um, you know, maybe a, a step behind those three, but, um, you know, I, I think they, they, they can be right there. And I think on the men's side, um, there, there are some players I, I could see Taylor Fritz's game, um, you know, matching up well, I know he, he had a battle against Nadal last year in the quarterfinals. Um, so, you know, he's him and Francis Tiafoe, Tommy Paul, um, even someone like a Sebastian Corda, if he's healthy, um, I think or there's a ben, lot of Ben Shelton.
0: Here. Even yeah,
1: Ben Shelton definitely. And I, I think um, I, mean, I, I would say on the on the men's side, this is um, this year has been the best U.S. men's tennis that we've seen in in, in since in a long the 90s. Time. I, yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think it's a matter of time before one of those guys is are able to to really make a push for, a for, uh, a, a, a grand slam. So it'll, it'll be interesting. I think there's a lot to look forward to these next few months. I mean, both with the grass court t- season starting and then Wimbledon, and then, um, you know, the hard court season starting up. Um, so yeah, plenty, plenty to, um, look forward to, I think one, um, yeah, well, w- what were some other themes that, that you noticed, um,
0: yeah, Very I good. wanted to talk about Alcaraz a bit and then maybe lead it into rude. Um yep. obviously, you know, I mentioned just mentioned Alcaraz taking the physical side of the game up, but you could say, hey, well, what happened to him uh, you know, against Djokovic in that, that semifinal. That's a it's a fair point. Um but as Alcaraz pointed out, the nerves, the tension of the situation really played a huge part. And anyone Who's listening? Who has felt nerves before a match, during a match, knows that it is very draining from an energy perspective. Your energy supply—it's like a—it's like a phone battery that goes dead really fast. And it can—and the match itself was quite physical. Those first two sets, and 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 Alcaraz mentioned that. Um, the connection, I think that this has to sort of the mental game is that concept of locker room power and how alcaraz noted yeah it was a big moment of course but you're playing novak you're playing a legend and he said something like if if anybody tells me that they're not nervous playing novak he lies and it's like yeah that's probably true right so um and so yeah, what is locker room power again it's this aura that great players have around them, how professional they are, how they're always clutch, how they're able to win more than other people. And certainly Djokovic has that. Nadal has that. And that affects the other players in, in various ways. One of which is maybe it makes them nervous. Maybe it makes them tense because this was, this was probably the most anticipated matchup of the entire tournament. Certainly more than the final was and Alcaraz certainly knew that he was the number one player in the world number one seed and um yeah he said he was very nervous right from the beginning and that was a very physical match um so Djokovic's locker room power I think played a part there and I think it played a part in the men's final against against Casper Rude and one place so Josh I don't know if you remember but during the episode with David Samuel, he gave an example of what, how locker room power affects people. So he said, let's say you're playing Novak, and you have a, a forehand approach shot, you hit it, and then Novak hits a passing, jump up, passing shot up the line, and you kind of just look at it and like, oh, that's Novak, and you let it go, and, it, and it's in. And then you're playing somebody who's maybe 250, 500 in the world, you hit the same shot, And then you just step right in and hit that volley and put it away cross-court. That playing these guys, you're giving them so much credit that it makes you slower. And there was a moment, and I I know you remembered it, that in that second set, very early in the second set, Djokovic hit a good cross-court forehand, but it was reachable. And Rude just stood there and watched it go by, almost with that sort of his, his footwork and speed had been reduced because of the locker room power of this guy. And of course, he's just coming off the heels of getting drubbed in the, in the tiebreaker. So probably wasn't feeling great at that time. So um, it's just very interesting to see how, you know, this 36-year-old guy, obviously one of the greatest players in, in the history of the sport, still has this aura about him that affects everyone he plays. And and he's still got it. And I just think that that's, that's amazing. And how can these younger players learn to kind of burst that bubble a little bit? And in many ways, the way to learn how to do that, Josh, I think is to go back and watch Rafael Nadal highlights from 2005 and 2006 whenever he played Roger Federer. Because Federer had massive locker room power, really from like 04 to 09 or 10. And, but not against Nadal. Nadal was able to, to not succumb to that. But no one else has seemed to been able to figure that out with respect to those three guys, maybe Andy Mari for a period of time, maybe, you know, Vavrinka for a period of time. Like there have been certain guys at moments, but nobody, especially in the last five years, who's been able to do it consistently.
1: Absolutely. And I think, yeah, that, that locker room power is earned and they, you know, he has put in the, put in the time to earn that he's, He's had those moments throughout his career, where he's stepped up in big moments, big points, big matches, and and won. And I think, um, yeah, both seeing Djokovic and Svitanek's locker room power, and just the, the way that the other players recognize what they're capable of. Um, and it's not, it's not what they're capable of in theory, or, you know hypothetically it's it's because they've seen it it's because they've seen time and time again what they're capable of so i think it's 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 almost like the the extra factor there it, it's it's that that hidden factor that yes these two players are you know when you think about um Shviantek and Mukova it's okay th- these two players are deep in the third set and it's a close match but in the back of mukova's mind is you know, is, okay, I, I know what is capable of. And in the back of a player, whether it's Alcaraz having, you know, and maybe this connected to the physical problems that he had, just knowing what Djokovic is capable of, knowing th- about how many times Djokovic has, has battled and has had five set matches and has won, you know, I think back to, to matches that Djokovic, yeah, played against Federer at Wimbledon and, at the Australian Open and at the French Open and in different places where yeah 5 hours 5 hours maybe more and five sets and just seeing the way that that they battle and you know Alcaraz hasn't had nearly as many of those sorts of long drawn out battles I mean he had he had a battle against sinner at the US Open he's had you know he's had a handful but just knowing that whatever you know even though Djokovic is in his mid thirties at this point, it's not really a matter of, of age. It's a matter of experience. It's a matter of the fact that Djokovic has just demonstrated time and time again, that he can bring out the highest level that he can withstand, you know, the ups and downs mentally, physically, and that he can, yeah, he can, he's able to be resilient in a, in a really long battle. And I think that's intimidating. So I think that, that, Locker room power is, is clearly there for both of them, and I think it's, it's been earned through the battles, through everything that they've done up to that
0: point. Yeah, and Djokovic talked, he was asked about Al and, and and that kind of thing, and he was able to empathize because, you know, you mentioned his book, before he discovered, you know, his, his diet, um, he was often criticized, I think most famously by Andy Roddick, for retiring from matches. And um, man, that's a long time ago that that kind of thing happened. And he's, and he, he had a lot of difficult experiences early on playing guys like um, you know, Federer and Nadal uh, and, and not being able to succeed. And, 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 but in, in, the, in, in another way, they were showing him the way. And he has always credited those two especially Nadal, for showing him the level required to succeed as a tennis player uh, at, at the highest level. And so I think he was indicating that these are some of the experiences that one needs to have and that Carlos will be stronger and smarter. Um, Alcaraz did note that at the U.S. Open, he, he was experiencing cramps against Tsitsipas, and then he learned from that. And that he fully believed that he would learn from this experience as well. And that was another theme that was kind of nice between a lot of the players here. Rude, Mohova, Sabalenka, looking at their losses as learning experiences that will allow them to build on their games. And uh, none of this is fatal to their careers. This is simply, these are more experiences that clearly they just needed to have. And hopefully they're able to, to build on those. So... Um, yeah, when you look at Djokovic's journey, you know, compared to Rafa and Roger, um, yeah, it's, it, it was unique. He had to go through some tougher things. Rafa seemed to kind of find his mental game almost right away. He was able to, uh, at, least, at least young at a younger age, and then Federer was probably the, the last one, maybe, in terms of his age, to to figure it out. Um, but they all did. And they all developed this, this locker room power. And uh, like you said, you know, Spiontech certainly has it. Uh, everybody calls her the number one. She's earned that title. Yep. But whenever you listen to a press conference from one of her opponents, they, they note, yeah, she's the number one. It's as if they expect her to be clutch in those moments. So it's a really key concept. And as, as we discussed with David Samuel this idea of locker room power exists at every level and, and and we create it through being, you know, professional, prepared, calm, uh, not getting overly flustered or emotional about points and things like that. And, uh, you can create that for yourself. You can begin to create your own reputation around the game. But to me, it was on full display at this tournament.
1: Definitely. Definitely. And I think, um, and maybe this would be the last thing that I would add, because um, I know we've talked about. Well, we've talked some about Mukova, and we talked about both the champions. Um, I think Casper Ruud deserves deserves some recognition as well. I mean, he's now been to three of the last five Grand Slam finals because he's lost all three, but he's he's been there, he's battled, and I I think you know I, th- I think he definitely deserves some recognition. I um, also his. In his press conference leading up to the leading up to the final, so it was after his semifinal match where he played really excellently against Zverev, who was not at his best. Um, he talked a lot about the mental game, and I, I know they were asking him about um, about about the mental side of the game. You know, he talked about recovery, he talked about sleep, um, and. Yeah, they they said, this was his final question in the press conference. They said, you've spoken quite a bit now about the mental side of things going into Sunday. I'm wondering, is there anything you learned with regard to your preparation, how you'll spend this time between the semifinal and final? Um, and he was said, you know, when I wake up on Sunday, I'm going to probably not talk too much to, to too many people around. Just going to stay in my bubble and see if I can bring my A game. that's only a few times a year you have the chance to play final of a slam. So you better make it worth it. I'm going to try to, like I said, bring my best physical and mental tactical and, yeah, game and game plan for Sunday. So just really trying to focus on locking in. Um, He also said in the same um, press conference, they said they were asking him if he feels different mentally and physically, and um, he said – I But I'm just going to try to play without, like I said earlier, too much emotion, try to play without too much emotion. I think that's when I can play my best tennis, when I don't overthink the situation and think too much that I have to, that I have to win this match because, because then things can go on automatic mode. When you play in practice, that's sort of when I think many players can play very, very good when they're thinking. When they're thinking that this is just, you know, a practice match or whatever, it's sort of easier to play calmly. That's my goal. But yeah, of course, if I was to maybe win a set or be closer to victory, you're going to feel the nerves and then it's important to be mentally prepared. Yeah, I'm going to try to visualize myself in both winning and losing situations on Sunday and see if I can have a good game plan ready. So I think there's definitely a lot there in terms of having a plan, visualizing different types of situations. And we've talked about in this episode, Novak, um, how he uses visualization. Bianca Andreescu has spoken about how she has used visualization. There's a great video, and maybe we can link to this, from Michael Phelps talking about the same very idea, how he, you know, in his record-breaking Olympic career, would use visualization and would visualize what he would want to happen, what he didn't want to happen and everything that could happen so that when he's in any sort of situation, because he's visualized all of them, he has a plan. He's mentally rehearsed what he wants to do. And I, I like the Casper rude brings up that piece of things, the visualization piece. Um, And also just that he talks about, you know, not playing with too much emotion, you know, bringing up the difference between playing in practice and playing in matches and how in matches, people are thinking a lot more about the score, about the results about maybe the consequence of winning or losing and just, just try to play and without thinking about all that because that's when people tend to play their best. And I think that's true of the top players in the world. And I think that's true of, of the vast majority of tennis players out there. So that's, I think, the point that I would end on to you know give him credit. As I said, Mukova deserves plenty of credit too, and, you know, especially her comeback win against Sabalenka, especially the fact of how she battled and was even in a winning position against Iga. Considering all the locker room power and how tough she is, so I think both of the finalists deserve plenty of credit as well.
0: For sure. yeah, and I think there are you know some great themes that we talked about today, Josh. and um, hopefully listeners got a chance to see some of these matches and 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 see similar things to to what we saw and um, and we obviously hope that you enjoyed today's show. So thank you for listening for more on today's episode, you can check out the show notes. If you have any feedback or questions for me or Josh, please email us at tennisiqpodcast at gmail.com. If you have a moment, it'd be great if you could please rate and review the podcast so others can find it. Additionally, please subscribe to the show on your podcast platform of choice, including YouTube, so you can be notified of new episodes, and you can also check us out on Instagram. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash Tennis IQ podcast, slash membership, where you can learn about the benefits of being part of the Tennis IQ podcast community. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you soon in our next episode.